Good morning, beloved. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 28. Psalm 28. As you're turning there, I just want to give a quick encouragement. And just I can't thank you enough for how you've prayed for me this week and texted me along the way and reminded me of your love. And um, the Lord has answered your prayers. And I hope he feeds us with nourishment from his word. Psalm 28. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray, and we'll get started. Of David, to you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Because they, blessed be the Lord, oh, excuse me, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I will give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to come and help us this morning. Send forth your spirit that we might hear your word. And Lord, we say with the Gentiles in John 10, we say, let us see Jesus. Let us see him. Let him come and teach us this morning of who he is and what he's like. And cause us to cry for mercy, knowing that we will receive it and exult in that fact. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid, we lived in a small town in central Mississippi. And uh, one of our friends, he had a pool. It wasn't, you know, one of the big pools that you see. It was the perfect size. It had a slide. It was enough for him to have a slide and a diving board. It had a nine-foot end and a, uh, a place where children could just frolic in the other side. And I can remember we were there one, uh, one day, and um, I'm probably four or five years old. I can't swim, mind you, and I'm kind of playing with the other kids in the shallow end, and I can remember mom and dad were talking to their friends, and uh, I kind of start to venture off. And it was one of those pools that had like the ceramic bottom, the, the rubber ceiling. And so it kind of got slick whenever chlorine would hit it. And uh, I can remember I was moving further and further and the water's coming up closer and closer to my chin. And I got to the point in the pool where it drops off severely into the nine foot end. It slopes severely. And when my feet touched it, I lost my footing. And before I could get out the next scream, uh, I was underwater. And from what I can remember, it was just, 
I can remember going down that slope, not knowing what to do, and just keeping in mind, somebody had to have seen me. Somebody had to have seen me fall in, and, but nobody <laughs> at, at that point saw. And I can remember kind of hitting the bottom and going and looking up to the last place where I saw my dad, and my whole body's oriented that way. And it's almost like my hands are that way, and I, I'm, I'm letting out bubble screams, you know, like somebody save me or I die down here. And it, it was like, I, and it was, I kind of reached the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to die down here. Nobody saw me. And it was at that point that I can remember my dad jumping in and like breaking through the water in his full clothes. And I can remember him grabbing me up in his arms and he pushed off the bottom. And before I knew it, we were back at the side of the pool and I was so thankful. <laughs> my heart was just full of thanksgiving. And I can remember saying, thank you, dad, you saved my life. And I can just remember exulting in his strength, his vigilance, his care, his love to continue to look out for his child. And I can remember that very, very vividly. And the same thing is happening and something similar is happening in Psalm 28 with David. He, you see him, he desperately calls for, on God for mercy amidst his trouble and God hears him. And then he exalts in God's strength. And honestly, if you're honest with yourself, you're in turmoil as well. You're either from within or without. Everything, a lot of things are a trial in this Christian life, and we need help. And so what do we do? We call out for mercy. We don't deserve God's help, but he gladly gives it to us because of who he is in Christ. And that's what David is trying to teach, our, teach us today. He wants us to orient ourselves towards God, calling on his mercy and then exulting in his strength, which is our main point today. Here's our main point. Call out for mercy and exult in God's daily strength. Call out for mercy and exult in God's daily strength. And that's our two points for today. Call out for mercy. That's verses 1 through 5. And exult in God's daily strength. That's verses 6 through 9. Look down. Now, look down. This is, we're entering point one. Call out for mercy. Look down at verses 1 and 2. And what you'll no notice here is David's desperate disposition in his words and what he says, but also in his actions, kind of how he orients himself towards God. And so he calls on God, who's his rock, his safety, his security. And what does he want? He wants him to hear him. You can hear the desperation in David's cry. You see, you see there where it says, if you don't hear my plea, I'm going to go down to the pit. And if you are familiar with the pit in the Old Testament, and in David's mind, you go to one of two places. You either go to the pit or you go to the land of the living. The pit is this place where the wicked go. And he's desperately not wanting to go there. He wants to be with God in the temple. He wants to see his God. And so he begs him, hear me. Hear me. And uh, I just wonder if you've ever been there. 
If you've ever been so confronted with your sinfulness before a holy, righteous God that you are just desperate, desperately crying out to him, hear my prayer, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Those are the type of prayers that God hears. But he, David not only cries in desperation, what else does he do? He orients himself to God in desperation. Look at verse 3b. Look at 3b. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. You get this picture of David lifting out his hands to the, it's not the temple yet, it's the tabernacle, this tent that David has placed the Ark of the Covenant in. And it's putting on display what Jesus calls childlike faith. And uh, if you know me, a lot of, one of the people I spend a lot of time around is Glenn Higgins, and they've got four little boys, uh, three of which run around the house constantly, and one of which is, gonna, is almost there. And uh, one of my favorite things to watch is one of the third, the third son, George, whenever he needs something or whenever he is in danger, he, he will do this, this position right here. He'll go right here. And Glenn comes and sweeps him up. And that's exactly what is happening here. David is reaching. And notice where he's reaching. He's reaching to the sanctuary. He's reaching. Your, your footnote says the innermost sanctuary. You know where that is. It's where God's temple presence dwelt. It is where God set up his throne on earth. It's like heaven's, uh, heaven's embassy in Jerusalem. It's where God especially dwelt. And David is oriented towards there. And he's got his hands waiting for his father to catch him, to pick him up. And fast forward a thousand years, approximately a thousand years. John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. No longer is the holy of holies intended, uh, is, is no longer covered with a tent, but he is covered in flesh and he is walking around with his people. And you'll notice what they start doing, the faithful. They don't go to the temple anymore to find salvation. They begin calling on Jesus. They begin pleading to him for mercy. Two times in Matthew's gospel, blind men, they go up to him and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. And not only do they call upon him, they, they reach for him. Picture the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She cannot go to the temple because she's ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And in her mind, if she, she's like, if I can only touch his garment, and she just reaches for him. She's stretching out her arm to just to touch him. It's kind of like David stretching out his arm for the holy of holies. Or what about the man with the withered hand? You get this picture with the man. He's ceremonially unclean. He cannot ever go into the temple and what does he do? Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And you just get this picture of him stretching out his hand to Jesus and Jesus strengthening his arm and making it whole. That's what he does. That's, where, that's to whom we're calling. That's to whom we're reaching. And I just would ask, who are you calling upon? Who are you calling upon? Is your first instinct to pick up your phone and call your friend? Is your first instinct 
to even look to your spouse or to call upon your pastors. Godly counsel is not a bad thing. It's a gift of the Lord. But let's not forget that everything comes from the Lord. Even the most wise counselor gets his wisdom from God. So I would encourage you, the first instinct, when you're in distress, when you're anxious, when your conscience condemns you, call out to the Lord for mercy. Call out to the Lord for mercy. But also, to what are you reaching? What are you reaching for? When your conscience condemns you, when you're in distress, when you're anxious, we all reach for something. Something to distract us, something to medicate the pain. Maybe it's you reach for the medicine cabinet. Maybe you reach for the bottle. Maybe you reach for your laptop. Maybe you just want to drown out the noise of your soul as its alarm bells are going off. Maybe you just want to drown it out with YouTube for hours upon hours. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you can still reach for him. And you can still reach for him. If you reach for other things, they're like mirages in the desert. You've, seen a, you, you've heard of mirages or have you even seen one? It's, it looks like an oasis in the middle of the desert. And then you get to it and nothing's there but sand. Your thirst is not quenched. Your hunger is not quenched. You're not satisfied. Jesus is no mirage. Everything else is. Reach for him. Call for him. Now look at verses 3 through 5. 3 through 5. These verses reveal why David is so desperate in his moment. Notice who he's up against. And notice what is coming. Like in Psalm 26 that Colby preached, or like in Psalm 27 that Jeremy preached, there are false witnesses about. And they are against David, and they're against his people, and they want to wreak havoc upon him. And David understands this because, because God's revealed it in verse 5 that judgment's coming. God's going to be righteous and he's going to judge the wicked. And so you see his response to this knowledge. And it's kind of the backdrop behind his request there at the beginning of verse 3. And what does he say? Do not drag me off with the wicked. Don't drag me off. What a picture. You see, brothers, David under, brothers and sisters, David understands not only the lavish kindness of God, his mercy, but he also understands the severity of God for those who do not repent. God is merciful beyond our imagination. He shows it in that he never turns away someone who comes to him. But he's also more severe than we could ever imagine against sin and against those who do not repent. David knows this. Jesus understood this. He talks about the day of judgment. He says it like this. 
the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all curses of sin, all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You just get this picture of him sending out his angels. They're picking up people who do not belong to him, and they're, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. And David says, don't, don't treat me like that. Don't treat me like that. You see, you see, David understands himself, even as a repentant sinner, he understands himself to be a sinner nonetheless. He doesn't trust in his integrity, though he is full of it. We saw that in Psalm 26. He doesn't present that to the Lord as the reason why God should have mercy or grace. Because then that wouldn't be mercy or grace. That would be works righteousness. And so what does he play? Mercy. Don't drag me off. If you put David in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, he would be the tax collector. Lord, have mercy to me, a sinner. Now turn, now look at verse 4. David now turns from pleading for mercy for himself and he asked for judgment on his enemies. He asked that God would give them according to their works. And I just kind of wonder what you think about that. Is it hypocritical of David, who just requested for mercy, to now call upon the Lord to judge? How does this fit with Jesus when he says, love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you? How, did the, how do we fit these things together in the Bible? And I'm sure many of you have had questions about these. We call them imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory just means a curse. And so he's calling on a divine curse. But there's, a, there's just a couple of things I want to walk you through here. First is, as a general principle, we recognize that Scripture is a unified whole. And that if God wrote it, the law of non-contradiction non applies. What's written in the Old Testament is for, for us, and what's written in the New is for us. And they do not conflict with one another. We have to understand these things in light of one another. They are not mutually exclusive. Second, notice the nature of his prayer in light of verse 5. Look at verse 5. God has already told David that he's going to judge those who do not regard his works. He's going to tear them down. David knows the day of judgment is coming. And so he's just agreeing with God. He's siding with God. And he's asking him to be about his character, to, to be who he is. He's a God of mercy and grace, but he's also a God of justice and righteousness. And so in asking him for mercy, he's just asking him to be who he is. In asking for judgment, he's just asking him to be who he is. God, David rejoices in all of who God is. And the third thing is, David also wants the wicked to repent. You see it in Psalm 2. You see it in Psalm 83. Even the imprecatory prayer in Psalm 83, Asaph says, shame them so that they might fear your name. David wants sinners to come to know the Lord, and he would not have any problem with the wicked being converted into God's friends. And fourth, when you pray, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you pray this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying this, when you pray that, you're praying the same thing that David is praying here. There will be a day where God is going to remove all hindrances to his kingdom. All of the wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire so that he can bring about his heavenly kingdom, the place where we will reside for an eternity. It is necessary that this happens, and this is a characteristic of God in which you can rejoice in and take delight in. Maybe a quick illustration would help you. Some of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. You're familiar with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Imagine being in that kingdom where it's winter and never spring, and you're under the reign of the white witch and she lies and she steals and she kills to get everything she wants and she doesn't want anything to do with Aslan. She just wants everything. She wants to exalt herself above him. And if you're Aslan's disciple, if you love his justice, if you love his love, if you uh, long to be with him, what do you do? You groan under her oppression and you call about for the day. When Aslan will set all things right and there will be spring in Narnia and Christmas before that. It's not that much different with us, brothers and sisters. We live in the world where Jesus says that Satan in some ways is still the prince of this world. And we groan under that type of oppression. And we want to see righteousness done in the world. And so we can pray prayers like this, and I guarantee you the persecuted church in the world knows how to pray these prayers better than we do in America. As as their brothers and sisters get taken away, some of them don't know where they go. Some of them know where they go because they've seen them be killed right in front of their eyes. Do they want their enemies to be saved? Yes. But do they want God to deliver them uh, even more? Absolutely. And so when I pray for my brothers and sisters in China and Afghanistan and North Africa in persecuted parts of the world, I often pray these prayers. Lord, if they do not repent, crush the teeth of the wicked. Let your people prosper in peace. Let them bring forth the gospel in all of its glories and let not the governments hinder them. And so if you're ever wondering... So we should pray these prayers, and if you're ever wondering if you're on the right track as you pray these, is you don't want to be vengeful towards your enemies. You don't want to be uh, flippant. Just ask yourself this question. If the Lord saved your enemy, would you be happy with that? If the Lord saved your enemy instead of judged them, would you be happy with that? Would you rejoice in the fact that he saves his enemies as you pray these prayers? That'll kind of protect your heart because you don't want to be like Jonah who doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. And he hates the the fact that God was merciful to them. We don't want to be like that. Now look at verse 5. David is telling us why God is bringing about judgment on the wicked. They do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Because of this, God will tear them down and build them up no more. Notice the contrast in 4 and in 5 with works of hands. God has works of his hands and the wicked have works of their hands. Whether in the wicked it could be works righteousness, 
working their way to God, or it could be works of evil, both of which do not regard God's works. They do not regard God's works in creation. They see the mountains. They see the streams. They see the sun and the moon. They see all these things, and what do they do instead? They, they worship these things, the created things, rather than the Creator. Or they'll even take them and make their own carved image out of their own hands, an image that cannot hear and cannot see. Or what about the works, God's works of redemption, the work of his hands in redemption? The enemies that David is facing off against, many of them are coming from what is his own camp. Solomon, Absalom, many other, Ahilophel. They're Jews. They've heard the stories. They know of the Exodus. They know of God's love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know of his creation out of nothing. And it hasn't changed their hearts. And they've settled against David, who is the Lord's Messiah in Israel at the time, his anointed one. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, does that describe you today? Or maybe you don't know the Lord And this is it home. I rejoice more in my own works than I rejoice in the works of God's hands. Let me just up the ante a little bit. Creation, the Exodus, David's kingdom, all these things are wonderful works of God's hands, but they're not God's magnum opus. They're not his great masterpiece. They all point forward to one. The incarnation of our Lord, the man Jesus Christ. The scriptures say the scriptures say that God prepared the Son of God to have a body. The Son of God from before time, who's been with the Father before all the ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. God clothed him in flesh, and he dwelt in the land for 33 years, walking around the, the most wonderful work of God in his plan of redemption for his people. And what did they do? The Pharisees rejoiced in the works of their hands, their works righteousness, and many others rejoiced in their works of wickedness, and they turned their back on the greatest work of God. My question for you is, do you regard Jesus highly? Do you esteem him highly? Are you more impressed with what you can do or what God has done in Christ? Here's why I think you ought to regard him highly. Like David cried out for mercy in this psalm and got it, he cried out for mercy and didn't get it. His hands are held out, stretched to heaven, held by nails. But his father didn't come and rescue him. He was drug off with the wicked and torn down by God. Yet it wasn't for his sins. It was for yours. He did not receive mercy so that God would hear your pleas for mercy. He was drug off with the wicked so that you could be raised up in the hands of God. He received what was due, the work of your hands, so that you could receive the righteousness of God. 
he was torn down so that you could be built up. What a savior. What a savior, Christian. Are we going to get an amen? For you in here who have never made Jesus your savior. For you never cried for mercy to him or never felt your need to. Those who are consumed with the wicked works of your hands and have rejected God's work in Christ. Can you fathom a savior, a friend, a king better than Christ? Call upon him for mercy. Reach out to him and he will save you. That covers our first point. (laughs) Plea for mercy. Let's move to the next one. Exult in God's strength. Exult in God's strength. Look at verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. David is now praising God because he knows that God has heard him. And does God ever not hear pleas for mercy? If you look in the gospel, does Jesus never answer a plea for mercy? You won't find it. You won't find it. He always has compassion on those who plead for mercy. And he always answers that prayer. This is not only, I'm not only saying this for my non-believing friends in here, but I'm also saying this for you as well, Christian. Some of you are like me and you know that God is holy. But you don't always understand that part of what makes him holy is his endless mercy. He is not like you because he's also merciful. Some of you like me that when you mess up, when you sin, you shudder. And it's hard to come to God. It's hard hard to draw near to him because you know he's holy. But you have a God who's endless in mercy. Keep coming to him. Calling on him for mercy. You can never plumb the depths of his mercy. And now look at verse 7. It's going it's to tell us how God has answered David's prayer for mercy. How God has answered it. In what way? The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. And I am helped, my heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I was honestly surprised at the answer to David's request for mercy. Now remember, he prayed for what? He prayed that God would hear him and they would not be dragged off. He doesn't want to be torn down like the wicked. So you're anticipating like immediate deliverance. Like the day of judgment is this close and David needs to be carried out of it. Now, that's coming. That's coming in the next chapter that Ryan's going to preach and then Psalm 30 is going to celebrate that great deliverance from God's wrath that looks like a flood. But here, God's answer to David's request for mercy is to convince David's heart of God's strength and, and help to convince David of his protection. Final deliverance will come, but God is promising to 
not only deliver him then, but he's promising to carry him now in anticipation of then. Okay? Maybe, an, maybe a, a New Testament illustration will help. Paul, in 2 Timothy, his last and final letter to Timothy, he talks about this moment where everyone has abandoned him in chapter 4. And he's got to stand before Caesar in a, in a tribunal. And he says, everyone abandoned me. No one stood by me. But the Lord stood by me. And he strengthened me. And he delivered me from the lion's mouth. The Lord, and so then, so in the, in the here and now, the Lord strengthened him to preach, to not be ashamed, to continue to profess Christ as Savior. And then look what happens. In verse 18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Paul is convinced that because Christ delivered him and strengthened him for that specific moment and continues to carry him, that in the day of judgment, he's eventually going to still deliver him. So, Christian, when you call out for mercy, God's promise to you is not just, I will deliver you on the day of judgment. His, promises, his promise to you is, I will pick you up and carry you and strengthen you every day until you are finally home with me. That's his promise. Every day, mercies are new. And he's giving them to you. Any obstacle in this life, whatever it is, God is removing obstacles that would harm your faith or, or quench it. He's removing them for you. It's like, this, these are why these great statements in the Bible, like someone being picked up in, on eagle's wings. Like God has got you in his talons and he's carrying you all the way to the end. Or the great imagery of this psalm of a shepherd taking up a bruised Herding sheep and his uh, lamb in his arms and carrying it all the way to the end. That's what God is doing for you. When you look at your life, I just wonder if you sing with Newton, "Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Are you amazed that your faith is even still intact? I guarantee you, Christian, that should amaze you every day because you are not holding on to him as firmly as he is holding on to you and carrying you every day. David realized this, and far from carrying himself, he saw himself as being carried by God. It is, and it's the confidence in this daily mercy that he is receiving that raptures David's heart. Look at 7b. Look at 7b, the second half of verse 7. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. David is rejoicing in the fact that God strengthens him and causes his heart to trust in him and promises to protect him every day. Beloved, does your heart exalt in God's daily strength? 
Is your heart happy in God because of his mercy towards you every single day? Does that amaze you? Let me me remind you of the scripture that Bethany read. Jesus encounters these ten lepers. They're unclean. They cry out for mercy to him. And he grants them mercy. He tells them to go and show themselves clean. And notice, only one of them, all of them are clean, but only one of them comes back, and it's a Samaritan. The point is this, that not o- that only one appropriately, resp- the point is this, that only one appropriately responded to the Lord's mercy, and it was the least religious of the ten that were there. And we're all used to, and if you've lived in the cultural Christian South long enough, you're used to and you've seen religious formality. You've seen external works while the heart is cold. And if you're honest with yourself, all of us have come in here cold in heart, not exalting in God our Savior who strengthens us every day. And we just sing the words. And we just listen to the preaching. That's not what... God wants for us. He wants us to be like the Samaritan who comes and he thanks him and he gives praise to God for what God is doing in our lives. And maybe you don't know if you're like that. But, so I'm going to just ask you a couple of questions just to see where your heart is. Do you grumble at your circumstances? Do you complain regularly? Is your heart warm or cold? Are you hypercritical? Are you worried often? Are you angry? I could go on and on. All of these, all these things stem from a heart of unbelief that is not simultaneously exulting in God's mercy and strength. So we all need work in this area, right? How? How do we exult in God's strength? You continue to push these truths into your mind. God has provided mercy. Their mercies are new every morning, every day. He provides new grace every day. And we have to remind ourselves of that and convince our hearts, meditating on scriptures until we melt the ice off of them and that we are exalting in him. And I'll just say this, because it's, sometimes it's hard work. Don't let go of God until he blesses you in this area. Don't let go until he blesses you in this area. Now finally look at verses 8 and 9. Look at verses 8 and 9. Exaltation, it never remains inward. It always turns outward. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Notice that David has switched from talking between he and God, and now he's interceding and talking to God on behalf of the people. His logic is like this. If God has been this way towards me, and God never changes, God will be like this towards his people. This is why he says that God is their strength. 
He's not only David's strength, he's their strength. And he's not only David's saving refuge, he's their saving refuge. Then notice what he finally does in verse 9. He intercedes, on back, like he has this knowledge in his mind, and so he intercedes and prays for them. And this is something we need to remember, brothers and sisters. It's always those who are most assured of God's mercy towards them that are the most outward-oriented people in life. It's those that are most assured of God's mercy towards them in Christ that are the most outward, other, others-minded, selfless people in the world. So if you want to be a better person in prayer, if you want to be a better church member, if you want to be a better pastor, if you want to be a better evangelist, convince yourself of these truths that God is merciful towards you in Christ, that he carries you every day. Convince yourself of those things first. And then out of that overflow, you'll begin to see your life change as you want to be more like God. And as we near the end, look at the last line, 9b. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. What description most aptly describes David's relationship with God in Psalm 28? It's a shepherd picking up a desperate sheep in his arms and carrying them. And so he prays that for God's people. And I thank you for praying for me because I felt carried along this week. Even right now, I feel like I'm being carried in the strong arms of God. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That prayer was answered. <laughs> Ezekiel 34 says this. He talk, he talk, God is rebuking the false shepherds of Israel who love themselves more than they love the sheep. And so he says, I'm going to be their shepherd. God, the Lord, Yahweh says, I'm going to be their shepherd. And I'm going to take care of them. And then a little later on he says, and I'm going to make them, I'm going to make a shepherd over them. My servant David. And so you leave Ezekiel 34 going, who's going to be their shepherd? Is it God? Or is it David? And then you see the good shepherd come. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. God has become David's son in some way, though he is simultaneously David's Lord. God in the flesh, walking around from David's line, and he says things like, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. God heard David's prayer, and he granted a shepherd. And so, brothers and sisters, this great king, he's doing the same work today of shepherding. He's saving lives. He's, he's already laid down his life. He's picking up lambs in his arms, and he's carrying us all the way to the end. He's still doing that today because he never changes. And you ask me how I know. Because you're here this morning. You're here this morning gathered at the feed trough of God's word as you're being strengthened by the grace of God in Christ.
He has gathered you here. And he's going to continue to do so. So Christian, I pray that you would continue to trust in him and exult in his strength. And for those in here today who just, they don't know him as good shepherd. You don't know him as your good shepherd. He's spoken here today through his word to you. I would just ask you, are you going to hear his voice today? And let him be your shepherd. Are you going to cry out for mercy? And so that he could pick you up and carry you forever. Let's pray.